Well, hey, thanks for joining us for today's message as we dive into part two of our Christmas series, Far As the Curse is Found. Now, it may be a strange title for you, to be honest. When we first talked about it in our own staff meeting, I thought, well, this is a little odd, but there's a reason why we use that particular title. A well-known, maybe one of the most well-known Christmas songs that we sing this time of the year is Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written by the hymn writer Isaac Watts. And in that particular song, while the song is well-known, there is a verse that is not as well-known. And the verse reads like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so that's where the title of this song or this uh, series comes from, from that well-known Christmas song. And at this time of the year during Christmas, we sing and celebrate with joy the coming of Jesus, the birth of the Savior. And so what better way for us to kick off a Christmas series than to talk about why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Not just because there's a cute, cuddly baby born in a manger and we know the Christmas story, but because of what Watts says is true, that he, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Well, what curse is Isaac Watts talking about or referencing? Well, generally speaking, it's the curse of sin. If you go back, and we won't do it today, we don't have time, but if you go back and read in Genesis chapter 3, we see that when sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, that the curse of sin impacted the world and everything in it. In fact, God says to the woman, Eve, he says, there will be increased pain during childbirth. That was one of the effects of sin. He says to the man that the ground that produces the fruit and the the sustenance in which feeds you and nourishes your body. He says that ground is now going to be uh, producing the same thing. However, there's going to be toil. There's going to be strife. There's going to be pain. There's going to be labor. There's going to be intensity as part of that process. Why? Because when sin entered the world, there was this overarching curse, the effect of sin on the world. Now, it may be strange for us to think about curses, and, and during Isaac Watts' day, maybe it was more well-known or, or more often talked about, but for us, I think curse is often relegated to this fictional concept. It's this, this tale of magic and mystery. You know, I have young daughters, and so maybe in that world, it's kind of like Frozen 2, where the people of Arendelle, the whole plot centers around this curse, and the lights go out in the street, and there's these elements of fire, and then the ground begins to shake and move, and the roads are moving, and, and we see this fictional tale of Air of Arendelle and Anna and Elsa, and they go and they save it from the curse or whatever. I think for us, that the curse is often like a fictional thing. Or maybe we think of a movie like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the series The Chronicles of Narnia. I want to read a, a section of this, and the scene title of this particular scene is called The Agreement. And it begins with the white witch saying to Aslan, Aslan, you have a traitor in your midst. She's speaking of Edmund, one of the characters who uh, deceived and betrayed his siblings. And Aslan says to her, his offense was not against you. To which she replies, have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Aslan says, do not cite deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. The white witch says, then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. 
Peter, the sibling says, try and take him then to which the white witch says, do you think that mere force will deny me my right? Little King Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table as is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Now, in this particular scene, many of us have seen the movie. Maybe we've read the books. We see this idea that there is a law. There's a punishment associated with the law. And because of that, Edmund deserves what the law says, and that is to die for his breaking of it. But that's fiction. Although well-intended, maybe allegory and all that stuff, it's still fiction. Well, what about reality? You see, for us, in reality, there is a curse, and that curse is in association with sin. It's the effect of sin. It's our inability to keep God's law, and because we can't do so, it is the ensuing judgment that our inability to keep the law earns us. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So if you rely on the law and your ability to keep the law, Paul says that you are under a curse. Why? Because the law itself says everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So Paul lays out the problem. Here's the problem. If you are relying on your ability to keep the law, the law that you're trying to keep says if you don't keep all of it, then you're cursed. And that's a problem for us. Remember that Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Galatians who have followed Jesus. And these Galatians were primarily Gentiles. That is, they were non-Jews. But what happened, and the reason why Paul writes this letter in the first place, is the Galatian church had been infiltrated by these people called Judaizers. And the Judaizers were those who taught that in addition to Jesus, you also had to keep the law and you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to be uh, justified before God. And in fact, this wasn't just a problem in Galatia. This was a huge debate in the early church. So much so that in Acts chapter 15, there's assembled a council, an entire council called the Jerusalem Council, and they discuss and debate this very issue. In Acts chapter 15, in verse 1, we read this. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 5, it says this. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. What's going on is this, in addition to Jesus, these Judaizers, these Jews said, in addition to Jesus, you also have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. These things are necessary in order to be saved. And in Galatia, this primarily Gentile, non-Jewish region, these Christians had received Paul's message about Jesus, but they had been infiltrated by this same teaching about, in addition to Jesus, you need the law, you need to be circumcised. And when presented with those teachings, they began to resort back to law-keeping and circumcision for their salvation. Now, that's Galatia. 
None of us probably watching this have ever been to Galatia. None of us lived 2,000 years ago. Most of us are 21st century Americans. And so we don't think in terms of Jews and Gentiles and, and really and truly we don't really know anything about Galatia. But here's why this is a big deal for us. Especially if you're watching this in our part of the world, in the Bible Belt, where manners and morals are integrated into society. You're taught from an early age to respect the man upstairs. We so easily fall victim to this same mentality. And here's the mentality, even in the Bible Belt, that we often find ourselves thinking. If I obey God's law, then God's happy with me, and that makes me a good person. And contrary to that, if I disobey God's law, then God is mad at me, and that makes me a bad person. And so what happens is so often we think based on our actions, whether positive or negative, quote unquote good or quote unquote bad, we think that God's response to us and his approval of us is dependent on whether we are good or we are bad. And what Paul clarifies and, and really what he corrects in Galatians chapter three is that Jesus alone is sufficient and necessary for salvation. He summarizes the problem in Galatians chapter three, and he says it this way. It is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. Now let's talk about what it means to be justified. Justified is, is maybe a word that we don't often use today, but the concept behind it is this. No one is justified, which means no one is considered righteous, or maybe even more simply, no one is innocent before God because of the law. Well, how does that work? Well, the law says, here's the expectation, here's the standard. And what Paul is saying is no one before God can be innocent because all of us at some point have broken that law. So if we're relying on the law, our ability to keep it, then no one can say before God, I am innocent because I've kept the entire law. That's the problem. And that's a problem for the Galatians. That's a problem for us today. We often think in our ability to keep the law, Paul says, no one can be innocent before God because of the law. He says instead, because the righteous will live by faith. Righteousness is that innocence. It is that idea that we are not guilty. Paul says not guilty, being innocent, does not come from the law because we all fail to keep it, but righteousness comes by faith. And he says this, but the law is not based on faith. So if righteousness comes from faith, the law is not based on faith. How then can righteousness come from the law? That's what the Judaizers taught. You are saved by your ability to keep the law and by being circumcised in addition to Jesus. Paul's point is that the law has nothing to do with being saved. He says, instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Righteousness comes from faith. Now, in just a few verses later, we don't have time to read it all, but I can summarize for us. Paul will use the example of Abraham to say, this is what I'm talking about. If you don't know who Abraham is, Abraham is the patriarch of the nation of Israel. The lineage in Israel's history is Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, and then Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons who eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Paul points to Abraham, what he says is this, 
God said that Abraham was justified by his faith. Abraham was counted righteous, innocent, not guilty because of his faith. And the Judaizers taught, no, you are counted righteous because of Jesus, yes, but you also have to keep the law and be circumcised. If you don't do the latter two, you can't be justified. And Paul points out and he says this, before there was ever a nation of Israel and the custom of the Jews, there was Abraham. Abraham was not part of the Jewish nation. He was the patriarch, but there was no Jewish nation until the 12 tribes of Israel. And so because of that, there was no law. Abraham lived 400 years before the law was given to Moses. And Paul's point is this. If God said to Abraham, you are righteous because of your faith, and now the Judaizers say you can only be righteous because of the law, then Paul's point is basically this. Then how can Abraham be righteous if he lived before the law ever existed? And that's his point that he's driving home. That's what he wants the Galatians to understand. Yeah, the Judaizers come in and it sounds good, but what you need to know is that Abraham was not even considered an Israelite or a Jew. He was the father of that nation. But Paul's point is that Abraham was righteous before the nation of Israel existed. Abraham was considered righteous before the law was ever given. So if Abraham was righteous in God's eyes, how did that happen? And it happened, just as Paul says, because the righteous will live by faith. And that's exactly what was true of Abraham. It was because of his faith that he was righteous, not because of his law keeping, because the law did not even exist in that moment. So Paul's point is this to the Galatians, your right standing before God is dependent on faith, not on law keeping. So then that begs the question, well, faith in who or faith in what? And he'll tell us in just a few moments in verse 13, faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. So how does Jesus rectify the problem of the curse? How does Jesus solve the problem? If the curse comes through the law and our inability to keep it, how does Jesus rectify the problem? Paul tells us in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That's how it happened. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he goes on, he says, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. When Jesus died on a Roman cross, he says that he became a curse. Not only did he suffer physically and emotionally, he suffered spiritually because the law says that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. When Jesus died on a Roman cross, a wooden cross, by the law standard, he became cursed and he became a curse on our behalf for us so that we don't have to endure the effects of the cross. I want to break this down a little bit and spend a few moments here. First, it says Christ redeemed us. What does that word redeemed mean? Well, I'm no Greek scholar and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but the Greek word for redeemed here is ex agarazo. And that word literally comes from a couple different uh, combined words, ek and agora, which was the marketplace. And it literally has the idea that out of the marketplace, Jesus redeemed us. The word redeem means out of the marketplace. Why? Because this was a word typically used of slaves. Slaves were sold in the marketplace. They were considered property that could be exchanged with currency. And so oftentimes it was said of a slave, 
they could be redeemed, which meant uh, there was a purchase price and the price that would pay would gain that slave freedom. So the slave who is in slavery is set free, gains freedom through a price that was paid. And that's the picture and that's the word that Paul uses to describe us. You see, the biblical reality for us is because of the curse, we are slaves to sin. But Jesus paid the price The price was his own life by dying on a Roman cross. And when he did that, he paid the price so that we can be set free, set free from the bondage and the slavery of sin and its effects. And Jesus redeemed us by paying the price. Well, what was the price that was paid? He says, Paul does, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law said, if you don't keep these things, here's the judgment. Jesus, the price that he paid, was he paid the price that we deserve, and that is this. He endured God's wrath that we deserve. When Jesus redeemed us, when he became a curse for us, he took on our sin, he took on the judgment of our sin, which earned God's wrath, and so when Jesus died on the cross, he took God's wrath upon himself. And the Bible says that because of his righteousness, because of his perfection as a spotless, sinless lamb, when he offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, that he satisfied God's wrath. So Jesus paid the price by giving himself, by taking our sin upon himself, and because of that, he became a curse for us, paying the payment of our sin so that we could be redeemed, that we could be set free from the bondage and slavery of sin and its effect on our lives. He says, Paul does, the purpose of Jesus becoming a curse for us was that the blessing of Abraham, what was the blessing of Abraham? That Abraham was considered righteous. So instead of being cursed because of our inability to keep the law, Jesus became cursed by dying in our place so that instead of the curse, we can receive the blessing. It's this exchange that happens through the payment of a price. The price was Jesus dying on a cross. Paul says the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Jesus, through Jesus, so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, all of this occurs because Jesus became a curse for us, and by doing so, he redeems us. He buys for us our freedom to be set free from the penalty of our sin. Jesus didn't just suffer physically. He didn't just suffer emotionally. He suffered spiritually by enduring God's wrath on our behalf. So that's how Jesus buys us back. That's how the curse is defeated. Maybe this is best pictured in that same movie I referenced earlier, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. After Aslan uh, meets with the white witch, he agrees to take Edmund's place to die in his stead. Edmund is set free but it cost Aslan his life. And as such, Lucy and Susan, the siblings of Edmund, they go to the place where they see Aslan's lifeless body laid out on the stone table. They hear a noise, they look back and all of a sudden Aslan's body is gone and the stone table is cracked. And at that particular moment, this is what they say. Lucy says, where is Aslan? What have they done? And then in the movie, the sun shines brightly on their faces. They look towards the archway over the stone table. Aslan appears with a nice new mane and he's bigger than before. And Susan says, but we saw the knife. We saw the witch. 
And Aslan responds, if the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself will turn backwards. And I think that is the picture of redemption. That although Edmund deserved by the law to die, Aslan in his place agrees to die in his place, setting Edmund free, redeeming him, and he does so sacrificially as that substitute. And then just as in Jesus' day, Jesus did that for us on a cross, but as Aslan was turned back the tables of death, so to speak, Jesus walked out of the tomb on that third day, forever defeating sin and death. And because of that, because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf, we have been given peace with God. Look what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, that's that same idea in Galatians 3 of justification. Since we have been declared righteous, not by our law keeping, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who are trying to keep the law, we've broken the law, we failed to meet the standard, we have failed to live up to the standard of the law, we are enemies of God in that regard, we don't do what he declares to do, and yet the Bible says that we have been declared righteous by faith, and the result of that is we have peace with God. No longer viewed as enemies, but instead we are viewed as the sons and the daughters of God. Why? Because what, what once was hostility has been replaced through the redemption, through the payment of a price, Jesus, we now have peace with God. And I think this time of the year is a great opportunity to bring that truth to light. Because this time of the year is marked primarily by two things. Number one, gift giving. And if you have kids and friends and family, you know that the idea of giving gifts is, is one of the things that brings joy to this time of the year. We love to see our kids' reactions. We love to, to give a gift. But the second thing about this year, this time of the year, is that we remember the birth of Jesus. And I love how the birth of Jesus, and Paul points this out in Galatians 3, combines these two things. We celebrate the birth of Jesus because Jesus would grow up and he would redeem us by becoming a curse for us. So why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Because of what would unfold in days to come. Jesus came, we celebrate that, but we celebrate the reason that he came and that was to redeem us. The second thing is this, when Jesus broke the curse, when he made that payment, we were given a gift. And the gift that we were given is peace with God. So we can have peace with God. We can lay down our arms. We can no longer be in hostility with God, no longer enemies of God. But when Jesus did what he did, we can receive peace with God. The burden has been cast off of us. No longer do we have to try to please God by our ability to keep the law. No, we have peace with God because Jesus did all of that for us. And the burden has been removed. We were given the gift of peace with God. So this Christmas season, I hope that you'll remember these two things. Number one, why we celebrate Jesus' birth. That he has come to redeem us. He has come as a curse for us so that we can be set free. And secondly, this, because of what he did, we, you and I, have been given the gift of peace. And that gift of peace comes only through Jesus. 
So what Paul said to the Galatians, I would say to you, it's not about your law keeping. It's about Jesus and what he did on your behalf. It's the greatest gift we could ever receive. And I hope this Christmas season that you'll be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done.